Amen. Thanks so much, Pam. Uh, good morning. Um, so before we jump into Mark, uh, real quick, couple couple things. Uh, first of all, two weeks from today, um, we will be having our delayed um, AGM, so just our annual general meeting or annual business meeting. So it'll be after service. Um, lunch will be provided. So if you are an active member um, or in the membership pipeline, uh, that's for you. Um, we're going to talk about membership a little bit more next week as we uh, formally invite and finalize the process with several members who are coming through the pipeline. Um, so I'll save that for next week. But uh, this is just our annual meeting that we get together, we, we approve our budget, we kind of get an update on what's going on in different ministries and some of the things that we're looking forward to in the upcoming year. And I think what's really important at a meeting like, like this, especially in a season like this, when we say if you're a member of Reach Montreal, what we mean is that you're an active member in good standing. Okay, so if your name is on the list as a member and you have not been here in a couple years or you're just not active in the life of the church, this might not be the meeting to come in with like a blaze of glory uh, to share your opinions about how things are going at church, all right? So let's just make sure that we have a healthy posture going into meetings like this, especially where we're all still kind of stuck in like a weird emotional angst of COVID. Uh, so it's really important that we represent Jesus well and represent our church well as we approach things like that. Amen? Good, number two, uh, next week we're going to pilot something that we hope to start in two weeks from today as well. So the same Sunday. It's something that got put on ice because of COVID, but we've uh, wanted to have a church bookstore for a very long time where we make uh, key resources available to you uh, that have been vetted by us as leaders and that we think are really helpful kind of culture setting resources. So we've started with about a dozen uh, key kind of resources that we're going to start. We're offering them at a much discounted price compared to the retail. So Reach will eat the tax for you and some so that you can have access to really good quality resources. And we've tried to um, start that with kind of key books in each category of life. You know, some, some stuff kind of around biblical studies, some stuff around cultural issues, some stuff around justice, some stuff about maleness and femaleness, some stuff about human sexuality. So we've tried to like spread as wide as we can to make sure that we're giving you an opportunity to engage with topics and cultural touch points that really matter, all right? So look forward to that. Um, I've been excited about that because I, I mean, frankly, I like books more than people most days. So I'm super excited about those books being on offer to you, all right? Good. So we are back into our series in the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're gonna, we got a couple more weeks of Mark until we take a break for Advent to spend some time looking at the incarnation and focusing on Christmas. And then in the new year, we're right back into Mark to finish it at Easter, which is pretty awesome. So we're gonna spend the first quarter of 2022 finishing up Mark, and then we got some exciting stuff that we wanna look at after that as a church. But we're back into Mark chapter 9. And uh, if you remember, what we've been seeing is that Mark is all about people seeing Jesus clearly. And Jesus kind of a chapter ago kind of had this pivot point where he's showing us the people that recognize Jesus for who he is were very unexpected. But now, finally, his disciples are starting to recognize who he is. Followers of Jesus who are closest to Jesus are finally starting to understand who he is, what he's teaching, but not yet fully. 
And so this is a big text. I, I had to chop out a few verses for us so we can make sense of it. We're going to start in chapter 9, verse 42. We'll read the entire thing, and then we'll go back and unpack a few things together. All right? Verse 42 of chapter 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones, these children, or these young believers, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, a huge rock, were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet, um, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their, where, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. If you're underlining or ta double tapping anything, double tap the be at peace with one another. Now what in the world is Jesus talking about? Because very few of us would be like, I wish that was my morning devotional verse. I'm just starting the day feeling so in love with Jesus. It's just amazing, right? There's a lot packed into this, and Mark is doing something very intentional by placing this teaching of Jesus where he does. There's a super important historical context to this that you and I don't have, but his disciples would have been very familiar with. And that was an insurrection attempt against the Roman Empire by a guy called Judas the Galilean. I've yet to meet a good Judas, so I think in, in biblical times, Judas was just given to everyone who was the worst right? But a guy called Judas the Galilean tried to lead an insurrection, kind of zealous movement against the Roman Empire, and he was ended, up, ended up getting executed by the Romans, and he was drowned in a lake with a millstone around his neck. And the first century Roman historians, Josephus and Suetonius, mentioned this exact same thing. And so we already have like non-biblical resources showing us that this happened. So Jesus chooses this to say, I'm going to tell you something, and this would be way better than that happening, right? So he's giving him a very graphic frame of reference of a millstone being um, tied around someone's neck, them throwing off of the dock into the water and drowning their bodies as punishment. Now, often a millstone could get as big as six feet in diameter. This wasn't like, like a brick. This was a, a big stone. So the chances of you coming back was zero, okay? Unless you're David Blaine and you pulled it off. I don't know. I don't know how David Blaine does what he does, but pray for him, I guess. But here's what's really interesting. We got to catch this. And this is why I asked you to double tap and underline and highlight. Who is Jesus speaking to in this passage? He's speaking to his disciples. And now often verses like this are used to talk to non-Christians. You're going to hell, right? Oh, you, you worldly people who live out there. And then we grunt and... Almost every single time Jesus directly addresses eternal separation from God, he's speaking to his own disciples. That should give us room for pause. That Jesus would actually frame things like this, not for outsiders who are living in sin, 
but for his own followers as a warning to check the dashboard of their own lives. Not to be looking at everyone else in culture to try to justify where they stand with God, but instead a big, strong, graphic reminder to check the dashboard of our own lives. It's super important to see the context. It's hard, it's easy to miss it, because if you don't read it within context, you kind of like, you're like, you pick a verse out like this, and you're like, this is a verse about hell. Actually, it's not. Because if you go and read a few verses before, and then you go and read a few verses after, what you see is that Jesus is actually speaking to his disciples about their relationship with each other. And that gives a whole different frame of reference, doesn't it? That changes everything that Jesus says here. I'll give you a couple examples. I mean, it's, it's easy to miss this with like the cutting off of body parts and the hell stuff, right? Isn't it? Because it's just like you, you, your eyes just want to go there. But in verse 33 before this, he's talking to his disciples and he heard that they were arguing about something. We'll get back to this text next week. It's a great text. Um, but he heard that they were arguing. Christians, do we argue about stuff with each other? No. No. Come on, silly. But he's talking to his disciples going, hey, what were you guys, what were you guys arguing about? You know what his disciples do? They don't answer him. It's a good call. Because what they were arguing about was nonsense, utter nonsense. And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? Just let me in on the conversation. They're like, uh, nothing, it's okay. There's probably more important things we're going to be talking about. It's like, bingo. Bingo. <laughs> That's convicting for, for many of us, right? And then in verse 40, just before these verses, he talks about the disciples come to him kind of disturbed because they're like, hey, I saw a guy casting out demons in your name. Should we tell him to stop? Because, like, he's not one of us. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is like, no, 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 you guys are missing it. If somebody's not against us, they're for us. If somebody's doing a good thing, even if they don't have necessarily the right motives or the full scope of knowledge, guess what? Maybe we should partner with them as they do that good thing and help redeem the good thing that they're doing. But the disciples were caught up on us doing it better, us doing it with more religious language because they're not doing it right, right? And Jesus corrects them and says, no, no, no. You gotta be careful with the insider-outsider. And then right before this verse, um, he's, he's talking about not causing people to stumble, immature believers or children. And he ends with, be at peace with one another. So you see how important it is to read things within the right context, family? Like you gotta, if you take a text out of the context, you're gonna lose the entire meaning of that text. So it's super important to do this extra homework to make sure that we're not just plucking these verses out to make them say things that they are never actually saying. We gotta be very careful. So we wanna be responsible handlers of the word of God, amen? We want to be responsible. We want to be honest intellectually and theologically about how we handle the biblical text. Anyone, atheist, non-believer, can go to the Bible, go like this. Hiram also made the pots and the shovels and the basins. <laughs> Silly. This Bible thing, so irrelevant. Who makes pots and basins anyway? That was totally random. I, that was literally there, Okay. But you see what I'm saying? Like in a, in a culture of sound bites and retweets and if you don't tell it to me in this many cat, you know, characters, I'm not listening. It's so important, church, to sit and marinate in the full context of the word of God before we go and kind of spout off things that we think it's saying. All right, so that's a culture that we want to continue to foster and cultivate here at Reach, that we are, are, that we, we are in awe of the fact that God would even speak to us, Amen. That we'd actually take the time to inspire real human beings to say real true things about his nature and character. And that we would come to the Bible in awe and with respect and that we would honor it, okay? That's, that's at play here for sure. But 
this graphic image that Jesus is using for his disciples is he's trying to stress how serious it is to do two things. This is what we'll spend our time on. To mislead others, whether it's new believers or spiritual seekers or non-believers or whatever it is, and to mislead yourself. He uses this graphic image to get us to reevaluate our dashboard to make sure that we are not misleading others and misleading ourselves. Now, in psychological terms, experts just call this self-awareness. Anybody heard self-awareness? Maybe you've been told you don't have any, usually by your spouse. Because marriage is this beautiful gift that God gives us to say, you have no self-awareness. It's a beautiful sanctifying gift. But self-awareness, just to define it, is an accurate knowledge of your own feelings, character, and motives. An accurate view of yourself that lines up with reality. And often, we have a very low self-awareness, and when someone kind of tries to bring something to our attention, we're like, you don't know me. But what if other people actually see things we don't see? What if our self-perception of ourself is the thing that is broken? What if we are prone to mislead ourselves? Do you think that we are? Oh yeah, we are, baby. Experts say that only about 10% of all people on the planet Earth are self-aware. Like truly, with integrity, in all areas of their life. That is a low percentage if we look at this room. Right? So our self-awareness is what Jesus is getting at here. Now, here's a few signs that you lack self-awareness. Welcome to Reach Montreal. Ready? You're unwilling or reluctant to admit mistakes. Anybody terrible at saying sorry? Right? Me. I am. And it comes up in my self-awareness dashboard in my marriage. Right? But you just have a really hard time admitting mistakes and saying sorry and taking ownership of things that you did that maybe were out of step, unintentionally or intentionally. And what it ultimately shows is that there's a lack of comfort with vulnerability, right? There's a vulnerability to apologizing. Are you with me on that? Like, it's just like, there's, there's like, oh, I have to like admit my own weakness and failure and that sucks. I don't love that. Anybody? Right? So that's a lack of self-awareness. We could grow in our self-awareness. Another sign of a lack of self-awareness is being hypercritical of others. So we end up feeling good about ourselves in the measure of how we can cast others worse than us. And I got to tell you, this is one of the main preaching points of our entire culture. Just tear other people down so we justify and build myself up. And if I just live with a critical lens and point out all the failures of other people, it'll just distract a blinking light over here and take attention off of my own. Right? So you're hypercritical. Tend to be, think the worst of people and the best of yourself. That is poor self-awareness. Another sign is procrastination. Or specifically a chronic, a chronic avoidance of hard decisions. You like the easy ones. Easy decisions are fun because they're easy. But you tend to shy away from making hard decisions. And last, and we could keep going, but last, um, you're vague about your feelings when you do talk about your feelings. So rather than saying like, I'm angry right now, I'm in an angry place, or I'm, I'm very disappointed with some things in my life right now. That's a very clear emotion, right? Like I'm disappointed with these things in my life. You'll say, oh, I don't know, I'm just kind of out of sorts. <laughs> right, you're not able to actually name your emotions accurately and clearly. That is poor self-awareness. Ultimately, it's a lack of self-knowledge. 
It's a lack of introspection. It's a, it's a lack of, like, like scripture says, keeping a close watch on your own life and doctrine. Right? So there's a, a, Jesus is encouraging higher and a stronger self-awareness, and that's what he's getting at. Now, here's a quick sidebar for us as believers. If you're a believer in the room or listening anywhere, this is for you. If you're not a believer, this is not for you. You can tune me out for the next 30 seconds. Believers, if there's anything that we need to understand about what Jesus is getting at here, it's that how you live matters. Like, it matters. It matters in the eyes of the watching world. And I know the pushback on this is weird sometimes. It's like, but Jesus said the world would hate us. So it doesn't matter what the world says and what they think about us. That was not in the context of us just being jerks. You with me on that? That was in the context of us believing something that they see as ludicrous. And that is that there is a Jewish rabbi in the first century who is God who put skin on and came and laid his life down and three days later picked it back up and ascended to heaven and is returning with a new creation one day. That's why the world rejects us because that's ludicrous to them until they experience the beauty and hope of the gospel. How the world sees us matters. Our witness and credibility to the truth of the gospel matters. It doesn't just matter in here. In our echo chambers of everyone who already agrees with us, it definitely matters how outsiders see us and think about us in our posture towards them. It matters more than we have given it credit for. And honestly, I think we can all think of people in our life and unbelievers, you can get back into this conversation right now. We can think of, of believers in our life who have set a beautiful example of the gospel. Amen? Right now, you can think of names. You can be like, man, just, I don't know, not perfect for sure, but the grace and just the love that they just like, they leak it everywhere. They, they show what Jesus is like, and they're, they're just such a good example of the fruit of the Spirit. But we have lots of examples of others who have set a poor example, a poor model. Maybe some of those same people have actually hurt you. Or you just look at their life and they're so dang unhappy. They're so anxious. They're so angry. They're so fearful. They're so unloving. They're so triggered. And then you're like, is this Jesus thing even legit? I don't, I mean, their life is not telling me it is. Our witness matters. People associate what Jesus is like with how his followers live. They do. And if we want to just sit back and cross our arms and go, but it's the world. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. I would say you have some serious introspection that you need to work through because that is not at all what our witness to the watching world should be. Amen? This matters, church. This matters. If we're walking around and we're just as fearful and angry and triggered and hypercritical and judgmental and unloving as people that don't know Jesus, and frankly, some of them are more of those things than we are, which is always embarrassing. And you're like, man, I like non-Christians more than I like some Christians. That's a sad thing to say out loud. Do you treat others and speak about others in a way that honors who God is? Do you post online 
and say things about others that you disagree in a way that would make anyone even want to be in a room with you for five minutes. Over the past two years, COVID has exposed stuff that was always there. But I think for us, the outrage and the fatigue and the polarization that we've all experienced, what's happened is people that we disagreed with or maybe didn't see eye to eye with, it wasn't just we could agree to disagree and still like get on, all right. What happens is people that we disagree with became strangers because we didn't have proximity with them. And then those strangers didn't just stay strangers. Guess what they became? They became threats and enemies. And so now we're caught because strangers became enemies. And now we don't really know how to get back to like, how do we get rid of this weird increasing suspicion that I have of others with a different perspective? How do I get out of this weird lock that I'm in of of assuming the worst of everyone because they're a threat to me or the gospel or the church? How do I get out of being gridlocked in a, in a just jumping to conclusions about people or labeling them about a very small thing that maybe I know about them? And church, if we think that this is not affecting us as followers of Jesus, we are naive and foolish. Oh, they're unvaccinated. Probably a conspiracy theorist. Definitely anti-science. Oh, they didn't vote conservative. Hmm. Interesting, they probably don't care about aborted babies. They're talking about social justice a lot. They're probably a Marxist. These aren't hypothetical things. These are things floating around in the ether of our daily lives. Not only have I heard them, I've been called them. You've been called them. I'll just stop with the examples because we just keep going because they're just so... Amazing. But where do we get off calling ourselves followers of Jesus and then doing that? Living like that. Thinking like that. Perpetuating stuff like that. And trust me, I understand the lack of proximity that we've had with real people. It's been easy to dehumanize people. Are you with me on that? We dehumanize them because we turn them into a digital collection of ideas we need to rehumanize humanize each other as image bearers and get back to the table and get back to sofas and get back in each other's faces and talk about things that maybe we don't see eye to eye on. Because what happens is the outrage and the fatigue and the polarization starts to dissipate to the fact that you're sitting in front of a brother or sister that honestly you actually really enjoy. And we forgot that. So reach, this is not a rebuke as much as it's an encouragement and a reminder that we need to get back to this because it is not an honest and it's not a witness to the gospel that has any integrity. And I know that many of you and myself included are not interested in being a part of a community or a culture that represents that. All right, good, now I'll preach. We'll go back to, after I quote Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen um, is a great writer on spiritual disciplines. He wrote this in 1986. I'm just gonna leave this with you and then we'll tackle Mark. Watch. Is it possible for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings? The movement from hostility to hospitality is hard and it's full of difficulties. Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property, 
and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear, intrude, and do harm. He wrote this in 1986. This is before our digital outrage. This is pretty wild. This is very prophetic. But still, this is our, Christians, vocation. It's our career. It's our job. To convert the enemy into a guest, and then to create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. Church, this is nothing short of what it looks like to experience the gospel. That you and I are strangers until the gospel shows up and calls us daughter and calls us son and brings us home. That it's God's hospitality towards us as sinners that should fuel the fact that we should be the first ones being hospitable and open and creating spaces for people that think wildly different than we do. And I regret that often we are the last, but that doesn't have to be true of us. Doesn't have to be true of Reach Montreal. We are enemies who have been made sons and daughters. So credibility matters, church. Being a trustworthy witness to the gospel matters. Here's a few verses, and then sermon one is over, I promise. Philippians 4, verse 5 through 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonable. Like it's just such a reasonable word. Just be reasonable. Just, just, just present yourself as reasonable. Right? It's a great verse. 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, outsiders, honorable. So it does matter. You with me on that? That actually does matter. That we, we could keep our conduct in our lives honorable. Colossians 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Amazing that those verses are there. So be encouraged. Sermon 1 is about that, because I do think Jesus is getting at this. This is the undercurrent of this entire text. Now, let's get into the details of the text. What is Jesus talking about? Cutting off arms, poking out eyeballs. Like, did he write a Saw movie before Saw happened? Like, what is happening here? What is this mutilation weirdness that Jesus is talking about? Well, pretty easy to see that Jesus is not talking literally. With me on that? All right. Jesus is using something called, we're going to go back to grammar school, go back to grade four, hyperbole right? Hyperbole. This is a hyperbolic statement, which is intentional exaggeration to make a real point. Now, this is super important about how we read the Bible. Because if any of us walk away from this and go, oh man, I really liked both my hands, but I guess for Jesus, (laughs) right? Not what Jesus is doing. Not what he's getting at at all. It is easy to understand that in this text, that he's using exaggeration to stress a real point about the seriousness of removing things from our life that bring us into sinful desires and actions. Now, this is the same reason why it's important to understand that we got to read the Bible on its terms, right? That around here, you've heard me say it and teach this over the last few years, we do not read the Bible literally. We read it literarily, amen. So we, no one reads the Bible literally. No one does. Why? Because biblical interpretation is a multi-layered process of me coming to Scripture, 
and needing to work through all of the layers of the personal and cultural and historical things, then I can decide what the meaning of that thing is. Then I can apply it to myself because I'm full of biases and assumptions and experiences, and then I can apply it to my life. Biblical interpretation is far more complex than we say it is. This is the same reason we do funny stuff with texts that we are so far removed from. It's the same reason why we do funny stuff with Genesis. It's the same reason why we do funny stuff with Revelation. Revelation talks about locusts with, on horse, like, like horses with human faces and a woman's hair that have teeth like lions. Now, if you're like, better watch out. Where are they? Obviously, we know that that is not a literal description of something we're looking for. But then a few verses later, we turn the mark of the beast into a vaccine. We need to be more responsible with how we read Scripture. Because coming at a text like this and walking away literally, all of us are in the emergency room by 2 p.m. That is not what Jesus is getting at at all. So we need to understand that we need to read the Bible literarily and then we can apply it theologically and personally. And Jesus shakes us up with the extreme language he uses here. Here's why. Because he wants us to take our own sin more seriously than we tend to. And the image here of being thrown into hell is supposed to be shocking. Now, we gotta be careful with a text like this. I'm not gonna teach on hell today, but... Hell, the word for hell there is Gehenna, which is an actual valley just outside of Jerusalem. It's the, the Hinnom Valley near Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it's referenced a few times. If you want to nerd out, you can check out Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 7. But it's referenced in the Old Testament several times because that's where the Canaanites worshipped Molech and offered children sacrifice. Uh, icky place. And in Jesus' day, it's probably that Jesus is standing there teaching that day, and he's able to point over to the Hinnom Valley. And at Jesus' time, it was used as a, basically a huge dumpster fire, where human waste and bodies would go outside the city gates, and it would just burn. And it burned all day and all night. And so Jesus is actually using an object lesson. He's not describing the furnishings of hell. He's using metaphorical and symbolic language to make a real point that there is an existence that is eternally separated from all the goodness of God. So be careful, again, with reading Scripture that we don't say, if he's using a metaphor, therefore it's not real. Metaphors are real descriptions of symbols that reflect a real thing, right? So Jesus is using this to get this graphic language to his disciples, He's not talking, hey, church, look at us. We love Jesus. We're going to heaven and everyone else is going to hell. You can't find that in scripture. It's not there. That's not honest to how Jesus even talks about eternity at all. So we gotta be careful there. If you wanna talk this week, call me. We'll do a little mini sermon on hell. But we, get, we just don't have time today, okay? And notice what Jesus says about these body parts. And it's, all, I mean, because the Hinnom Valley was just bodies, corpses and dead bodies, like, the image would have been like, oh, I guess I throw my hand into the, the hellfire. Like, you know, like, it would have been very graphic for them to, to see this and understand this. But notice he says, hand, foot, and eye. Cut it off or tear it out. Jesus is saying, don't be casual and dismissive with your own sin and harsh with others. 
Stop being casual with your own selfishness and your own pride and your own greed and your own laziness and your own lust and your own compromise. Be way more harsh with your own sin than you are with others. If there's anything in a sentence that Jesus is saying, it's that. One commentator summed it up like this. What Jesus is calling for is not physical mutilation, that's clear, but spiritual mortification. The cutting off of harmful practices from one's life. The hand, the foot, and the eye encompass the totality of life. The hand symbolizing what we do, the foot symbolizing where we go, and the eye symbolizing what we see. Jesus is calling for a radical reevaluation of those three categories of our life. What are they for you? What are some of the habits, the rhythms of your week, the way you spend your time or waste your time, what you consume and watch and don't watch, how your own selfishness or self-righteousness or your own pride comes out, how you treat others, how you neglect justice for the marginalized and the oppressed, how you overspend on yourself and underspend on anyone else, or those hidden sexual sins that you still haven't brought out of the darkness and killed in the light. Here's the thing about this text, that even if we did poke our eye out and cut a hand off and cut a foot off, guess what we'd still have? One eye, one foot, and one hand. And we'd be able to sin with those. (laughs) So Jesus' point isn't the body parts themselves. The point is the heart. That even if we did poke those things out and cut those things off, He's getting at the point where Jesus is confronting our lack of self-awareness and our tendency to downplay the severity of our own sin and overplay the severity of others. And psychologists talk about our culture being a blame-shifting culture. This isn't a Christian perspective. This is just psychology. You can go check it out this week. We live in a blame-shifting culture. Nothing is ever our fault. Ever. If someone else is, we gotta cancel them. Cancel them, cancel her, cancel him. We're not responsible for anything anymore. And talk about a terrible lack of self-awareness, right? If we can't even take ownership or responsibility over any way that we've contributing to something not good. A blame-shifting culture goes easy on ourself and is harsh with others. All grace all the time for me, no grace none of the time for everyone else. Never our responsibility. It's always someone, it's my parents' fault or it's my daddy's fault or it's what happened to me or it's that group's fault or it's the Christian's fault or it's the non-Christian's fault or it's the conservative's fault or it's the liberal's fault or it's, and it just doesn't stop. Whenever a contributing member to the solution, we're just a blame-shifting passive member of doing nothing. And it describes our cultural water today. And Jesus is pleading with us as followers of Jesus, followers of him, his own disciples saying, please be crazy, patient, and radically gracious with others and be violently aggressive with your own sin. Imagine the posture that that would create in us. Imagine the humility we would walk with, like the amount of times through life we would walk with a limp knowing our weakness. And understand that that's the prerequisite to following Jesus, church, is like a denial of self and a weakness and a surrendering of the fact that I can't do it. Not like showing up and being like, look how great of a Christian I am. I love life. <laughs> but it's like, no, no, I'm so weak. I'm so broken. I, I'm, I'm at the end of myself. I'm the worst. Um, a Christian hip-hop artist that I've followed for many years when he was in university, he made t-shirts up, like hundreds of them, and just gave them out all over the place. And it said, without Jesus, I suck. 
And he would just wear it around campus and it would start quick conversations. I was like, well, what do you mean? And then he would just get to share the gospel. Because that's the starting point of the gospel. It's like, no, 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 it's not because we figured it all out and we're morally killing it. It's because we morally suck. And we're at the end of ourselves, and we need a savior. And every day I need to be reminded of the grace and mercy of God making me new so that I can continue to cut out stuff of my life and have a renewed mind and a renewed thinking and a renewed heart. That's the gospel. Jesus is saying, cut it out, kill it. All that stuff in the dark, drag it out in the middle of the street and execute it. Treat it seriously. And this is just real quick, geek, geek for a second. Hyperlinking us back to Genesis chapter four. What would Sunday sermon from Pastor Dustin be without a hyperlink to Genesis? If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? We see jealousy, we see fratricide, which is just a fancy word for a brother killing a brother. Did a book review once on a guy who wrote an entire book on fratricide. That's the only reason why I know that silly word. <laughs> but Cain and Abel, in the story of Cain and Abel, if you remember, the story isn't that a murder happened. The point of the story is right at the end where it says, sin crouches at the door and its desire is to master you. That's the point of Cain and Abel. The Hebrew word for crouches there is beautiful, similar to what Peter uses about Satan prowling and roaming. The Hebrew word is for a tiger, that the tiger is just kind of crouching and waiting for its prey. That sin is waiting for you. Like you don't have to find it. It's waiting for you. It's finding you. And if you're not proactively killing it from your life, it is going to find you and it is going to kill you. That's the violent language. That's the graphic language Jesus is using here. But remember that in Genesis, sin doesn't start with the action itself. It starts with the affection. And often sin will crouch in hidden affections and fantasies and desires and what ifs and if only I could have. And, and it, it crouches there way before it ever shows up in an action. So for some of us, it's in fantasies. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just dreaming about the future. Or, hey, man, like, I mean, she was beautiful. I mean, I'm not gonna like go and buy anything in the shop. I'm just gonna window shop, you know, bro? No, I don't, bro. Cut it out. That's dumb. Or it's work. I'm not a workaholic. I just, I'm really driven, you know? Like, it's just a season of my life. I'm gonna be super driven while everything else is just getting sacrificed on the altar to your workaholism. Or financially, it's in money. I'm not stingy. I'm, just, I'm frugal. You know what? I'm praying about how to give. For three years? And it just goes on and on. I'll stop giving examples. The point is, though, sin hides itself from us, and then it hides us from God. Sin hides itself from us, and then it hides us from God. And the beautiful story of Genesis is guess who comes looking for us? Guess who comes walking through the garden, calling out our name? After we've sinned, God does. He's after us. So even though sin is crouching, hidden, waiting, there's a God who's pursuing and searching and loving and calling. And church, if there's anything I want you to hear from my heart, it's that he's doing that right now. That today, right now, in this moment, he's calling you again. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what this week looked like. It doesn't matter if the last two years are just a write-off, just nonsense and waste. He's calling you right now, in this moment, that sin is still crouching, but, that, but your God is bigger than all of that. This God is calling you. He's, he's searching for you. He's seeking you out. That's why you're here. That's the entire point that Jesus is getting at. And the seriousness by which we need to take this. 
A casual approach to our sin inevitably leads to not just a sinful life, but hypocrisy. And Jesus is calling his own disciples on hypocrisy. This is the point in Matthew 7. I'll throw it up here real quick. Matthew 7 verse 3 says to his disciples, why do you see the speck in your, own, in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is already in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me, let me, get, that, let me get that speck out of your eye when there's first a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. I know we love to use these verses of other people. Jesus is talking to you and he's talking to me as followers of him. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I love this text because the image is beautiful and hilarious. Like Jesus is hilarious sometimes. I don't know if you guys missed that. An eight foot two by four in my eyeball. And I'm like, hey, Raquel, you got a little something there. Come here, let me just get it. It's hilarious. But he's saying that is the condition of our heart. Like that, that is how we live. Continually downplaying the severity of this log in my eyeball and just being like, oh, you got a little something. You got a little, you got a little thing there. That's what he's getting at. Because a casual approach to our own sin leads us to hypocrisy. Jesus' point is that we're all blind to our own blindness. Amen? The only person in the room that cannot see this is me. All of you can see that, unless you don't have your glasses on. But, okay? Like blind spots are blind for the person who has them. So we need people in our life to be like, you got a little something. But by the way, could you tell me if I got some? Like I got a little schmutch, spiritual schmutch in my hair. I, don't, I never have that problem, P.S. But you got, a little, you got a little spiritual schmutch in your life there. Let me just get it for you. Could you get my schmutch too? Don't just forget that word. Don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Don't let that be the takeaway from today, please. All right? The question that Jesus is asking here is, do you see your sin clearly enough to be pointing out someone else's? Super important question. Are you self-aware enough to be making others aware of their own lack of self-awareness? Let's start there. Do you apply the same standards to yourself as you do to others? Often we don't. That's what hypocrisy does to us. Hypocrisy makes us really great at accusing others and really good at excusing ourselves. Anybody with me on that? Super good. And just all grace, you know, no, man, just a, it's a personality quirk for somebody else who's like, you are a horrible human being. But what happened? Isn't it a personality quirk for them too? Like, what just happened there, Jekyll and Hyde? That's what hypocrisy does to us. It extends tons of grace and patience to ourselves, and none to others. Now here's the creep of this. It, it crouches, it's creeping, it's, it's hidden. You know, you look at something that someone else has, maybe it's material possessions, like that car, or that house, or those clothes, or that handbag, or whatever it is. But you give little to nothing. Or you look down on someone else's lifestyle, specifically who they're sleeping with, because the church is still so obsessed with somebody else's sex life. I don't know why. But you look down on someone's lifestyle, they're living with someone, they're sleeping with who? And you're burying your own sexual sin and porn addiction. You criticize somebody for drinking alcohol and you're 50 pounds overweight. You're critiquing the way that the church is doing something while you're not serving or doing anything in the church anyway. 
You're questioning someone else's integrity about any topic while you're slandering and gossiping others in every other conversation you're having. Church, it's everywhere. The hypocrisy, the creep of hypocrisy is everywhere. And it goes on and on and on. Romans 2, Paul says, draw near to me. They, they, these are the people, these hypocrites, draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their what is far from me? Their heart. Their core of their being is not about me. They do all this outward stuff. They talk a ton, talk a great game theologically and here's all the ways that I can wax eloquent. And their heart is far from God. Their life is not growing in the fruit of the spirit. That's what hypocrisy does to us when it's run amok, when it's run to the end. Now, John Owen, the Puritan in 1656 said, do you mortify and make it your daily work? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I think, I think he's right. I think that's exactly right. That there's not a neutral place for sin in our life. We're actively eyes wide open to the sin in our life putting it back to the foot of the cross for Jesus to take care of, or it is trying to bury us. There's no neutral kind of like gray zone on how we approach sin and how we think of it. So how do we grow in this? How do we understand this? And I know it's hard. It's hard to talk about hypocrisy. It's hard to see hypocrisy in ourselves. These are hard words, church. I get it. This was hard for me all week before it was hard for you right now, okay? But these are good. These are good reminders to draw out our lack of self-awareness and the own hypocrisy that might be hiding in your heart and mine. How do we grow in this? I think the only way that we can grow in this, the only way that we can actually do what Jesus is calling for here is by living in community that practices confession. And I know we've like ragged on the Catholics for so long of like confession in the booth with the priest. No, no, no. We just confess to one another. Guess what's happened though in Protestant circles? We stopped confessing. And we've created this hyper-individualized version of spirituality. So the only time we confess is in a room by ourselves when we're having our devos with Jesus. So I want to give a point to the scoreboard for my Catholic brothers and sisters and say that there might be something about confession that they've actually kept going a little bit healthier than we have. Now, I'm not going to build a booth and have you do that to me because I don't think that's what Scripture teaches either. But scripture con constantly reminds us that within the context of community, if we are not confessing of our own sin, we will not be healed. That's pretty frightening. That's James's point when he talks about confession. James 5.16, he says, confess your sins to the holy priest in the box. No, confess your sins to who? One another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Church, it's right there. It's right there. This is how we grow in self-awareness. This is how we actually get away from a, a slow creep towards hypocrisy by living in community that practices confession, but confession specifically defined by grace and truth. Grace and truth. John 1, 14, about Jesus' incarnation, says that the word of God, Jesus himself, bless you, came, became flesh. <laughs> um, that was grace and truth extended to you, amen. Um, that Jesus came, that Jesus came to earth, became flesh, put flesh on, tabernacled among us, full of what? Two things, 
grace, and truth. Now, are we ever going to nail those perfectly? Of course not. Jesus did, though. And so if we get into community, we can balance both grace and truth. Now, grace without truth is just emotionalism and sentimentality. But truth with no grace is judgmentalism and just criticism. And so we have to hold both of those things in balance and say, how do we cultivate a community of people where it's safe to confess because there's grace for you and the darkest, deepest naughtiness of your heart can come out loud and no one's going to flinch. We're not going to go, my, by Jeeves, by Jobes, my word? <laughs> I don't know if any of those were real things, but never. We're not going to flinch. Why? Because I am soberly aware of my own. And I'm creating a space where it's like, I'm not going to flinch when you say you thought what this week? You went and did what last night? That there's a safe space of grace because grace has already taken care of the thing that you are saying because it's already on the cross. Jesus already nailed it there, but also with truth. Whereas brothers and sisters, we can actually call each other to holier lives. We can actually point things out without just getting met with defensiveness. And how dare you? You can't, you don't know me, whatever. I'm gonna stop. Okay, we're gonna finish. But both grace and truth, cultivating a community of confession, the most loving thing that we can do for ourselves and each other is graciously and truthfully call attention to the areas that we need to grow. Not using truth as a weapon, but as a scalpel. Like there's a difference between having truth as a sword. I mean, like, I'm just gonna stab you because I love you, brother. Or a scalpel of like, care and planning and precision of cutting things out for your health. That's different, right? Using truth not as a weapon, but, but as a tool of healing. John Chrysostom in the fourth century, one of, a, one of the church fathers says, correct your brother, not as a foe, not as an adversary, exacting a penalty, but as a physician. Approach one another as a physician. We're going to actually approach each other's flaws and where we need more grace and need more truth as those who are caring for one another. And one more example of this, then we'll, we'll be done. But this is Paul's point in Ephesians as he's talking to the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, he talks about speaking the truth in love, right? Some of us, we love this text. It's a beautiful text. But it'll be up here in a sec. Yeah. Speaking the truth in love. That's how we're supposed to live. That's our posture. I'm going to speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, what's really cool about this text, just leave it up there, speaking is not actually the point because often we're like, I'm just going to tell you the truth, brother. You're an idiot. And the reason I tell you that because I love you. And say, like, no, actually the verb is not the speaking part. The verb is the truthing part in Greek. So it's actually truth one another in love. Just like continue to like roll each other in truth, right? That we would be truthing one another in love. And it's important is that we need this because we're not good at telling ourselves the truth. And if we start there, church, we're gonna grow so much in this because that's why we need each other. We're not good at, <laughs> I was super cute, I know. Almost every single person looked over there. That's why having the washroom at the front is, is, is a tough challenge. 
And I'm like, what do you guys, oh, that's so cute. Okay, truthing each other in love. We're not good at telling ourselves the truth. That's why we need each other. And so a community of confession cultivates that. And truthing each other in love isn't just about what we say, it is, but it's also about how we say it. It's our posture of how we communicate something. That matters, that we give the benefit of the doubt, we would assume the best of somebody, that we'd speak to each other rather than about each other, that we'd come with a forgiving posture, that we'd leave no room for bitterness and we'd fight for clarity. That's a true thing, one another in love kind of culture, right? That's a beautiful thing. And I think the early church, when you look through the New Testament, they one anothered one another really well. There's tons of one another's, there's over a hundred one another's in the New Testament. I'll share a few of them with you, just to make the point that this is what it looks like to be a part of a true thing, one another culture. Love one another, be at peace with one another, honor one another, don't pass judgment on each other, accept one another, teach one another, eat with one another, have equal concern for one another, serve one another, carry each other's burdens, be patient with one another, be kind and compassionate with one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, we love that one, consider one another, don't lie to one another, encourage one another daily, build each other up, do not slander one another, do not grumble and complain against one another, pray for one another, Confess your sins to one another. Live in harmony with one another. If we just took those one another's out and we just made them our mandate, if we're gonna commit to live in light of these one another's, our culture internally would change and our culture externally would be changed. And it would be a beautiful thing. So that's our call. So here's the the question I'll leave you with. When is the last time that you did tell somebody maybe a, a whole truth? Maybe it's a hard truth, a whole truth. But even better, the better question, is when's the last time you invited someone to tell you? Actually invited it. Not just waited till maybe they got enough confidence to tell you, but like said, hey, do you see any blind spots? Is there anything that, you know, you you see me maybe working on, like growing in, but I could grow more? Is there ways that I could? you know, receive a little bit of truth and grace in this area and and really try to cultivate sanctification and growth in my life. Now, that can't be anyone. You can't just go up to anyone today and be like, hey, you there, stranger who doesn't know me. This is a deeply sensitive process for sure. But when community is cultivated, we're gonna have two or three brothers and sisters beside us who do see things that we don't see. And so we continue to cultivate this. We're able to actually invite that and not feel like we're gonna get attacked, not be defensive because we know that they are for us and they're gonna come with grace. Left alone, we won't tell ourselves the truth and that's why we need each other. So to close, the only way to fight this, the only way to fight the creep of hypocrisy is to actually be undone by the grace of the gospel. And so we're gonna sing our first song after I'm done. We're gonna sing Amazing Grace. And we're going to reflect on the beauty of God's grace. We're going to remember our state aside from grace. And for you and I, who are already followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded of that today, convicted of that. But if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, this invitation is to you. That this might be the day that you respond to that grace and say, you're right, I don't have it all together. And I do want to learn. I want to start to follow Jesus and let him change me in the ways that he knows our best with grace and truth. And I would say, do that today, don't wait. 
Treat it with the severity that Jesus tells us to here. Cut out and say goodbye to your old life and say yes to a new life. And do it today. And the way that you do that is you just simply pray. As we're worshiping right now, you can just simply pray and say, yes, Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. Change me, enter into my heart, take my life. It's yours. And guide me as, as I go. And it's as simple as that. I'll leave you with a quote for C.S. Lewis. He wrote in The Weight of Glory about this, but the nature of being a Christian. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant, the nonstop things of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law or the bullying husband or the nagging wife or the selfish daughter, or the deceitful son. How can we do it? Over and over and over again. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. So let's celebrate and respond to that. Hypocrisy doesn't belong in the kingdom of God, in kingdom people, because kingdom people have their eyes locked on the king's grace and mercy and love. The reason why we can be transformed by this is because God doesn't treat us like we deserve. And because he doesn't treat us like we deserve, we can go and also offer that to others. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we confess, plural, as a community, that we have forgotten just the extent of your grace, the beauty of it, the depths of it. And we've also overlooked and downplayed and trivialized our own sin. So we collectively, as we respond to this, we pray that you would convict us, but that it wouldn't just sit with conviction and, and turn into to guilt or shame, but that it would be turned by grace into action, that we would leave here today looking forward to confessing our own sin, our own weakness, our own flaws, our own brokenness, and that you would create ways that we can do that covered in grace and truth. And I pray that as we worship and as we respond, that you would make it true in our hearts again, whether it's for the first time that we respond to this or the hundredth time that you would make this grace alive in our heart and that we would open our mouth and confess that we too need you, that we need rescuing, that we need your strength, that we need your power because we are weak. And it is our weakness that allows you to be strong. So we ask these things in the mighty, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.